Friends, it's so good to see you all. It's so good to see you. Thank you. That's great. Um, So it has now been about three months since Abby and I have been here. And just want to say to everyone who is... Thank you again. That's great. Just want to say thank you for all the people who have made us feel so welcome for the hospitality we've been shown. Really has made the transition smooth, um, feeling good. And so thank you so much to this community. It's been great. Um, If you would join me, let's pray one more time before we dive into the word. God, we are so grateful to be able to gather this morning to uh, meet with each other, to encounter you through your word, through your worship, through uh, the relationships we have here. We pray that you would brood over us as we hear your word this morning. And God, we pray that this spoken word would be faithful to your written word and lead us to the living word. Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right, so does anyone know what yesterday was? We probably do. Saturday, right. And the first day of fall, right. So first day of fall, you know, it makes me think of all the treats I love to eat during the fall. In the summer, I love grilling, love watermelon, love berries. Fall is all about, like, caramel, pounds of butter, and apples and pumpkins. So, in anticipation for the fall, as a foodie, what I did was, last week, I read a, uh, like a food history magazine that was talking about what you would eat in the fall and why that's a thing. I came on this awesome video about apples, and we're going to take a look about it. I felt so passionate about it. That's <laughs> something. So isn't that incredible? Like, growing the perfect apple. I had never thought about the history of apples, how we did that. Um, Apples, specifically the Honeycrisp apple, have been developed with immense time and effort and people who have devoted their whole lives to study apples and fruit have, um, have majored in the field of pomology. That's what it's called. If anyone didn't know that, I didn't. Pomologists, people who study and try and create new and better fruit. And they're all trying to do the same thing. They're trying to grow the perfect fruit. So the goal is to grow produce that doesn't spoil quickly. It tastes good. It looks good. It's easy to grow. And maybe it has like a novelty factor. Has anyone had cotton candy grapes? Yeah, they're like good, kind of a weird good. I don't love cotton candy, but grapes that taste like it, it's like... All right, I can get on board. So, like, there's a certain novelty factor there. And so, pomologists, there's a constant push to become better and better experts in their field so that they can develop better tree strains, they can graft together more clones and better clones, and then produce better fruit. And this is similar, I think, to how some of us have been taught to think about spiritual growth. So, this is how we've been taught to think about spiritual maturity. I know earlier in the passage we're going to read today, Jesus is going to say that he's the true vine and we're the branches. But on a, on a boots-on-the-ground level, on a practical level, we often treat ourselves much more like the scientists, like apple scientists in the video, and we do that more than we actually think of ourselves as the branches. So we imagine that spiritual growth looks like this. We are cultivators who are trying to better our faith, 
through things like church and Bible study, prayer, retreats, conferences. And we do that so that we might be able to grow delicious apples from trees. So imagine a friend comes to you and they need advice. Right? They're like, I have a problem. Can you help me with this? And then we'll think, okay, favorite Bethel song, cut off a lyric, we hold that. And then some wisdom we heard from a sermon, add that. And then maybe your favorite Bible verse or something. And we bind that all together. And then in the conversation, we'll say, here it is. We'll plant that. And then the person on the other side will take whatever is produced from that. They'll eat it. And then we'll rejoice and say, look, we fed them. This is how we give advice. Right? This is how we give counsel. We tend to do that by grafting things together. And so, we imagine that becoming spiritually mature means that we can do this work. Right? We can increase in knowledge and then plant better things that produce better fruit. But so much of our worship, so many of our models of discipleship, of Christianity in America do this thing. They form us to be able to do this better. So Christianity, as we've come to learn it, takes this very shape. We become experts, we become mature, we become strong Christians, and then what we plant will be healthy, and then what comes from that health is good fruit. What this also shakes out is that as we become more proficient in planting trees, as we get better at this work, Uh, we become able to sustain ourselves, right? So as we become experts in Christ, the fruit of our individual trees becomes more and more perfect to the point that we don't need anyone else but Jesus, right? At the point where we become such good pomologists, we develop the perfect apple, that we can plant it and then sustain ourselves. We we become self-feeders, right? So we've been taught that spiritual growth is a process of leveling up, to be able to produce better plants, resulting in better fruits. But what if this isn't necessarily wrong, but is an incomplete idea or picture of what the process of discipleship looks like? Or what if it's incomplete? What if the goal of spiritual growth isn't to level up, to do this, to feed ourselves? Like, what if the goal of scripture, or the goal of spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, is not supposed to drive us away from community, but drive us back into community. Like, what if that is what spiritual growth and maturity looks like? Well, this morning, as we come to the end of our series, Gather, Go, and Grow, join me as we explore John 15, 7 through 12. John 15, 7 through 12. As you're finding that, I want to make it clear that the goal today isn't to make you disregard everything you've heard about discipleship and spiritual growth. It's not to do that. It's not to come with a critical spirit. But it is to say that many of us here have heard gather, grow, and grow before. Like it's a series you do every year. This sermon is something that is familiar to you, especially if you're like OG Bethany, if you've been here since day one. Like this is common, okay? But today in our hearing, let us discern the word of the Lord with openness of how God might be speaking to us, okay? So John 15, 7 through 12. If you abide in me, 
and my word abides in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But this, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. So, isn't this like a wild text? For context, a couple things are important for us to understand here. This chapter, chapter 15, fits within what is known as the farewell address. So think of this as Jesus' final words before he goes to the cross. He's already washed his disciples' feet. The Last Supper has happened. Uh, It's the night before his crucifixion. And Jesus is trying to give his disciples some last words, something to hold on to. So he's giving them words that are meant to sustain them after he dies. Of course, they don't know he's going to the cross, but he's trying to give them words that will sustain them. So everyone look at verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So this echoes a theme that the book of John is trying to get across in Jesus' final words over and over in this farewell address. For clarity, the phrase, if you ask, you will receive, happens in chapter 14, It happens in chapter 16. It's obviously something John wants us to hold on to. In this verse, though, as is, again, sometimes the case that in English it doesn't translate well, notice how we might misread what Jesus is saying here due to English not distinguishing between you singular and you plural, right? You and y'all. So we almost always read this verse to mean this. If I live in Christ and his word remains in me, whatever I ask of God will be done for me in the name of Jesus. But what this passage is really saying is if y'all, that's the community, the disciples, the community of Christ followers, abide or remain in Christ, and Christ's words remain in us, whatever we ask will be done for us. That's how it actually translates. Again, it doesn't translate into English, but that's what the words are actually saying. So it's subtle, but do you see how drastically different these two readings are? This happens over and over again in the Gospels. So Mark 11 is even more radical. Jesus answered, well, Mark 11, verse 22. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I tell Y'all, if if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart, notice it's one single heart for a plural group of people, but believe that what you say will come to pass. It will be done for you. This is, again, you plural. So I tell y'all, whatever y'all ask for in prayer, believe that you all have received it, and it will be yours. Do you see what is happening here? 
in Mark, in John, in other places as well, Jesus is continually trying to bind the disciples and those who claim that he is Lord together in unity. In the way we've typically come to understand spiritual growth, think about how verses like this one, when we read it singularly, play out. So if the Bible says that I, if I remain in Christ and Christ remains in me, whatever I ask for will be done for me, like using this Marx text, we understand this to mean if I just have enough faith and I don't doubt in my heart but instead believe and pray, Whatever I say will come to pass. The mountain will be thrown into the sea. But most of us have lived in the church long enough to know that's foolishness. Like some of us have experienced disappointment when it seems that God hasn't pulled through. He hasn't pulled through for us. And in the aftermath of God not acting, we've been forced to confront how we must not really be in Christ, right? Since whatever we asked for wasn't done. Or even worse, we're stuck saying, I must not have enough faith. Or if I must, I must have doubt in my heart because whatever I say didn't come to pass and I know what God's word says. It just says there. So how we've been taught to think about spiritual growth as a process of moving up to the next level or to get more intimate with God has left us and has left some of us sitting in shame when God hasn't pulled through for us. Because we must not have remained in Christ. We've been taught to think that it's all on us. So we're just not on the right level yet for God to answer our prayers. When this is how we talk about prayer, spiritual growth then becomes a process that is meant for us to obtain more faith or to give us more intimacy with God because then, if we reach a certain level, if we become mature, if we get the right mix of things just right, God will answer our prayers. So we think if we can graft together the right branches, plant those branches, and that becomes a tree, and then pray with the right blend of faith, God will pull through for us because his promises are yes and amen. No, friends, this is not what God wants for you. This is not what the Bible is meaning in these verses. This is not what spiritual growth is supposed to be like. This is not what faithfulness looks like. Look at verse 7 again. When God says, whatever we ask will be done for us, He's addressing a community, and he's commissioning this community to find their identity in Christ. So he's saying, if all of you will remain in me, and if you will let my word root your life and your lives together, whatever y'all ask me will be done for all of you. This means that if I am praying while abiding in Christ— I'm not going to pray prayers that are self-serving. So as a kid, I used to pray before soccer games, right? really center myself to get ready, get psyched up. So I used to pray. And I also used to pray, God, just let the opponent, let, let the other guy 
let him slip or like break his leg or get get the flu. Just give me an advantage. I used to pray this before like every soccer game. I'm serious about that. It never happened. If I'm going to pray prayers like this that are abiding in Christ in a community, I'm not going to pray prayers that are self-serving. I'm not going to pray prayers that harm others. I'm not going to pray prayers that disenfranchise my neighbor. This kind of prayer isn't possible if our imagination is abiding in Christ. So this is what verse 7 is all about. Verse 7 is meant to help us see that, one, abiding in Christ is meant to be is meant to be a communal thing, not a personal thing. And then two, God's word is meant to develop communities of his word so that, three, through our intercession that is rooted in the word of God, God will act in the world around us. So abiding in Christ is a communal thing that develops appetites for God's word in us so that when we pray, we might pray faithful prayers for the sake of the community. In this way, intercession is an essential mark of community and is an essential mark of spiritual growth. So don't take the bait, friends. Spiritual growth, maturity, it's not about how much faith you have so that you can pray more potent prayers and then God will act on those. It's not about that. Growth in Christ doesn't work that way. Bethany, If we abide in Christ, if we let his word inhabit our lives and our life together, and through prayers of intercession, we do this, we will see mountains move. So let us grow in this, not in some sort of distorted vision of spiritual growth that views maturity as levels we attain. Let us grow this year in how we pray together. So back when I was in Tennessee, I was running my own soccer business, and I used to do a whole variety of things. I used to do college prep camps, uh, team camps, team clinics, all these things. Now, on top of that, I also used to do one-on-one, like, private lessons, specific position uh, lessons for goalkeepers and for strikers and all this thing. And I had this kid. He was eight years old. He was a goalkeeper. And I normally don't do specific goalkeeping that young, but he just kept begging his parents. So I said, fine, we'll, we'll rotate. We'll do footwork on one day. We'll do goalkeeping the next day. We'll, we'll make it work because he was very persistent. So fast forward a couple years, this kid, we'll call him Bobby. It's not his name, but Bobby, he's now 13 years old. He just got back from his first team session with his new premier team. So in the soccer world, that means something, right? This is something that he'd been working on over the last year. He'd been put on the team before, on, on the B team. He got cut. And so he worked really hard. Summer, he crushed it. And then he also grew five inches over the year. Really helped him. <laughs> and now he's on one of the best teams in the state. Like, he's actually very good. So when we finished training, his dad came up to me at the end of the day, and his dad had this concerned look on his face. So I went over to his dad and asked him if everything's okay, and his dad, he starts with this line. He says, I think I've made a huge mistake. So now I'm concerned. Like, that's the first line you say, not even hello. 
I am really concerned. I don't know if he's coming to me as a coach or as a pastor. He knows I'm a pastor. I'm concerned for him. And then I'm like, all right, what's, what's going on? He says, I've got a little dilemma. Bobby loves soccer. And we've worked really hard to get on this prestigious team. And we're paying almost double compared to what we paid last year. We're traveling more. Practices are longer. We have more specific training. We're, we're doing soccer like five, six days a week. And he still wants to come to your sessions three times a week. And I'm just worried that it's too much for his body. I'm worried that that's too much soccer for him. And then his dad says this. He says, I keep asking him, well, what do you want to do? Because I want to give Bobby the chance to make his own decisions. And he keeps saying that if he had to choose between training with his team or training with you, he'd much rather train with you. And then the dad says, I don't get it. So on one hand, I am flattered. This is great. Like, good job, Silas. This kid has great taste. (laughs) This is good. I'm so glad to hear that Bobby loves training so much. Like, that is awesome. But I also realize that during this conversation, that as a coach, I had really helped him develop to be a good goalkeeper, but I hadn't made him a better soccer player. And I'd overlooked developing Bobby's love for the game. And that was on me. Like, my training, well good at developing Bobby. 13 years old, he can do full extension dives over, like, trash cans this tall. He's huge. He's awesome. But while all of this is good, I didn't teach him how to develop chemistry with his back line, how to be a good teammate. My approach to his development didn't teach him any of this. It didn't make him want to take his skills from the training environment to a more risky, more vulnerable environment in the game where things really count. Like, I had missed the mark in the development program I had set for him. Five years as his coach and using my development approach, we'd just forgotten to keep in mind why we train in the first place. So this moment actually changed how I coach, and it changed how I pastor. Friends, if you've been going to church for a while, try and think about the ways you've heard people use this phrase. Abide in Christ. So we haven't sung the song here. I know Matt Redman has a song that's called, like, Abide With Me. There's also that famous hymn we used to sing growing up. You might know it. It's called, Abide With Me. And here are the words. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and my comforts flee, help of the helpless, O Lord, abide with me. Or dig into the archives and think about all the sermons you've heard about abiding in Christ, about why you, we, about why you should abide in Christ, about how we can live lives that abide in Christ. I've certainly heard this sermon. I've heard the song. I've sung the hymn. But if you would, take a look at verse 10 in our passage this morning. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, and you will abide, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. As I was preparing to speak this week, I was struck by something that I'd never realized before. Now watch this closely. First, in verse 10, notice that it's conditional, right? So Jesus says to the disciples, if they keep this commandment, they will abide in Christ's love, just as he has kept the Father's commandments, and Christ has abided in the Father. So there's parallel here. If we keep Christ's commands, we will abide in his love. So this begs the question, though. It seems simple enough. We, do, we obey the command, we abide. So what's the command? That's the question that verse 10 begs. What is the commandment that we should keep? Well, verse 12 tells us, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So it's at this point where if we've grown up in the church, we should say, pause, hold up. This isn't how we talk about abiding with Christ at all. Think about the song or the hymn. They're all about abiding in Christ. They're both literally called abide with me. But these songs kind of have it backwards in the way they talk about abiding with God in comparison to Jesus' words here. So don't miss this. Christ says if we obey his commands, we abide in him. And then the commandment is love one another. This contrary to how we almost always talk about abiding in Christ, we abide in Christ by means of our love for one another. It's not bracketed off from our relationship with others. We abide in Christ through our obedience to his command, which is to love our neighbor. We abide in Christ through our obedience to his command, which is to love our neighbor. So let me say this another way. I've heard plenty of sermons about how we're supposed to abide in Christ, but I don't think I've ever really heard a sermon that's specifically about abiding or remaining with others. And yet from our passage this morning, we cannot abide in Christ without our neighbors. If we want to abide in Christ, it is impossible to do that without loving others. So our love of others is obedience to Christ's command, and that is abiding in Christ. So if this is the case, how come our typical models of spiritual growth do exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying? We've looked at it earlier, so I don't want to overkill it too much, just recognize that the end goal for many of our spiritual growth models has been designed to make us mature out of community instead of directing us back into it. So I think of my parents. They're in a church. They've been going to church their whole lives. And, you know, they've taught. They've done ministry. They've been in church serving in every capacity possible. And now they're in a church where like, they feel like, oh, we, we are not really getting anything out of this experience. Like, we've kind of maxed out what church can give us. Why, why do we go? 
Just like how I did Bobby a disservice when I formed him in goalkeeping and in soccer. We do the same thing with people in the church. When we, and we do this disservice when we tell them that it's possible to reach a level of spiritual maturity without forcing you back into community. So as Christians, we do a disservice to the church, to the world, to God. When our spiritual growth, the vision we have for spiritual growth, focuses on our personal relationships with God, to the exclusion or to the ignorance of the people around us. To abide in Christ is to obey his command, which is to love one another. To abide in Christ is to abide with one another. To remain, to stay, to reside with one another. And this is radical. I mean, I think we can forget sometimes that Jesus' disciples were an incredibly diverse group of people. And in many ways, they represented oppositional groups. So imagine you have someone from the IRS, anarchists, businessman, tradesman, and then a thief. And those are only the five that we know. Like, there's other ones that we still don't know what they're about. And they're all being pushed together in community. And Jesus says to them, and one of his last words he's trying to say to them before he goes to the cross is, if they want to remain in Christ, they must learn how to remain with each other in community. This is what Jesus is actually doing here. So what if we took this seriously? Some of us have just started exploring what it means to follow Jesus. And I hope and pray that as you worship at Bethany Northeast, you will come to know God through the relationships and the community here. Like, may you encounter God here. And some others of us have been Christians for a long time. And for this group, it can feel like you've heard everything there is to be said about spiritual growth. So if you've done the small groups, you've served in church, we have so many that serve. You've read books, you've gone to conferences, you've done it all. You may feel like sometimes you've gotten everything you can get from church. You're spiritually mature, you've maxed out your growth. Let me challenge you this morning. There is so much more. There is so much more to Christianity and the faith. Spiritual growth is not about levels that you achieve or badges you earn. Friends, spiritual growth is a process that marks us to be a certain kind of people in community. So it's not about personal relationship with God. Remember what Jesus said, y'all abide in me just like how I abide in the Father when you obey my command to love one another. So don't be deceived and think that you can participate in the life of God without participating in the life of his body, without participating in his church. Now that doesn't mean you're serving, but it does mean that you're recognizing there's other people here that you are choosing to root yourself with. So this is why we meet every Sunday. This is why we meet here. We meet because in this body, in this community, we get to practice life together. 
We get to practice life with people who have different political or theological views, different life experiences, different backgrounds. We get to worship with people who are like us and people who are not like us. Spiritual growth is not supposed to mature us out of community. Spiritual growth is meant to form us so that we can live in communities that are more and more dissonant. The more mature you get, the more dissonance you can handle. The more mature you get, the more you will be able to remain with others who are not like you. The more your mentality will shift from asking, what did I get out of church this morning, to what is God calling me to do or be in the church? So landing the plane, I know we've covered a lot of ground. But let me leave us with three marks of spiritual maturity. Three images, three marks of spiritual maturity. First, think of the Zacchaeus story. We looked at it in the summer. We went through our series in Luke. Think of the Zacchaeus story. Remember, Zacchaeus, the wee little man, he wants to see Jesus, but on account of the crowd... He can't see Jesus. He can't get to Jesus. So he runs down the road, and then he sees a tree. He climbs up the tree, and then Jesus sees him. He sees Jesus, and then Jesus says to him, Zacchaeus, come down. I must stay at your house. For some of us, spiritual maturity will look like this. It will look like the steadfastness of the tree. So in community, there are some people who are called to grow slow, to be stable, and to do that and be so firmly rooted that others might be able to be lifted up by them, to be able to see and be seen by God. Notice, the tree doesn't make the encounter happen. The tree is just there. Allowing those who are searching, and those who are searching for God, to climb its branches so that salvation might come to their homes. For some of us, God wants to use you through the ministry of showing up and participating. He wants to use you to support and lift others up so that they might encounter the Lord. So I think back to my previous church where I was uh, at my first time pastoring and I was called to facilitate the transition between the founding pastors of a church, 27 years they'd been there, to a new lead pastor. And my job was like in the interim to facilitate that transition. I can't tell you how grateful I am for some of the people in the community who were steadfast, who were like this tree who faithfully supported the, commu- the community just because they felt called to be rooted in the church. Like it was a calling for them. That's why they came. For some of us, spiritual maturity will look like this. Steadfastness. Second, for some of us, spiritual growth will look like the story of Jonah. So Jonah hears a word from God and 
He's supposed to deliver this word to a city. And he's like, bump that. I'm going. I'm going the other way. He gets on a boat, sails the other direction, shipwreck happens, and then a fish picks him up. He spends time in the belly of the fish. And then after three days, he gets put onto the shore. And he delivers God's message to the city, and the city is saved. For some of us, spiritual maturity will look like the fish in this story. For some of us, spiritual growth is our ability to stomach the rebellious until they are ready to do the work that God has called them to do. So spiritual maturity is our ability to sit with others in a posture of openness and to be able to intercede on someone else's behalf so that when they do eventually recognize God's call on their life, they will step out right onto the shore at the right time to do God's work. This is what some of us are called to do. For some of us, we are called to grow in our ability to stomach others with grace. Now hear me, this is not some kind of sentimentalism. This is not easy work. This can be extremely disappointing. It can be extremely painful. So I recognize this is not easy to do, to stomach others in this way. But for some of us, God desires that we grow in our spirituality to be able to stomach others for the sake of his church. Finally, consider the story of King David's anointing. So in this story, Samuel the prophet is grieving over King Saul. And then God tells him to go to Bethany or go to Bethlehem, Bethlehem to anoint Israel's next king. And so Samuel gets there, and one by one, Jesse's sons pass by him. Eliab first, right? You have the whole line go down. And then eventually, David gets through, and then Samuel hears God say, yep, that's the guy. Anoint him. He's the one. For some of us, we're called to be like Samuel in this story. We often overlook What Samuel thinks as each son passes by him, he says this, as someone passes by, surely the Lord's anointing is on this person. And then the next son, surely the Lord's anointing is on him. And the next, and the next, and the next. Spiritual maturity is our ability to look at someone and to be able to call out the work of God in someone else's life. So it's, To be able to recognize and call out the gifts that God has placed in another. For some of us, this is what God wants us to grow in over the next year. So steadfastness, the ability to stomach, the ability to see God at work. What is God wanting to grow you in over this next year? Certainly, these aren't the only ways to measure spiritual maturity, to to measure spiritual growth. These aren't the only ways to do it. But hear me, Bethany. My hope and our hope as a staff for you over this next year is that you might be able to grow spiritually in one of these three areas. 
So as the band comes up, we're going to take a minute and reflect on these things as they, as they play, as we worship together. How would you like to grow this year? Let me make this abundantly clear. Our ambition here, my ambition as your pastor, is not to grow a bigger church, right? Or to offer bigger, better, more flashy programs. It's not about that. Our ambition for you and for your children, for this community, is to develop people who are more and more attuned to God's call on each of our lives so that we can live faithfully in community. And that, whether that community is a small group, a Bible study, here at Bethany Northeast, another church, your work communities, Lake City, wherever you find yourself in community, it is my hope that through our worship, through the things we do here, you are formed to be faithful stewards of God's Spirit. So let us pursue God through our pursuit of faithful relationship this year. Let us abide in Christ as Christ abides in the Father. Let me pray for us, and then as we worship, obey the Lord. Reflect on this word. Obey the Lord. If you want someone to pray with you, we can have someone over here from the prayer team. They'll meet with you. They'll pray with you. But obey the Lord, friends. Let us pray. Holy God, we pray that you would inhabit our prayers and reflections and shape us into faithful stewards of your work, of your spirit. Holy Spirit, empower us to do good work and show us how we can grow this year. Do not delay in your coming, God. We pray this with Christ by the Spirit. Amen.